Anthology of Heroes acknowledges First Nations people and recognizes their continuous connection to the country, community, and culture. The show pays its respects to elders past, present, and emerging and honor the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are advised that this show may contain names, images, or voices of people that have since passed away. It's the 21st of March, 1797. In the emerging colony of Sydney, Australia, Lieutenant General Watkin Tench and a handful of British redcoats nervously readied their muskets. Tench yelled to his men to stand firm and reminded them of their duty to the British Crown. Many weren't even soldiers, but convicts, criminals really, armed only out of sheer necessity. In front of the quivering battle line, an angry black mass shouted and gesticulated. Their spears were sharpened and barbed to ensure extra pain if removed. Front and centre was their leader, a man they called Pemelroy. Tench knew him well. With a clubbed foot and a turned eye, he was winning no beauty contest. But covered from head to toe in white paint, the Lieutenant General had to admit it was an intimidating sight. The man had been a thorn in the side of the colony for almost a decade now, and his reputation among his people had risen so high that he had managed to unite four Aboriginal tribes under him. For all the technology and weaponry at their disposal, the British Empire was being outplayed by one determined native. As more and more men joined the frothing mob, Tench knew he needed to act. Stepping slowly forward with a forced air of confidence, he held out his hands, his palms facing downward in a gesture of calm. But before he could say a word, he got his response. In under a second, a spear hissed through the air and embedded itself in the chest of the man standing beside him. As the man gurgled horribly, Pemelroy stepped forward menacingly. Fire! yelled Tench. You're listening to an anthology of heroes' forgotten footnote. Stories of heroes from nation-states that history left behind. And today is a story about an Aboriginal leader from the Bidjigal tribe who stood tall against the colonisation of his land. Over 12 years, he would fight tooth and nail, uniting other tribes in a coalition against the British Empire. Devilishly accurate with a spear and unable to be brought down by bullets, his very name evoked fear in the hearts of white settlers across the east coast of Australia. This is the story of Pemelroy. Out of all the stories we've covered so far, Australia's history is short. A group of tall ships arrived on the east coast of Australia in 1788. Chock full of convicts of Irish and British descent, they were dumped into an unfamiliar land to build their own prison and work off the sentence performing hard labour. The colony expanded and the rest is history. So at the time of writing this, that makes the country 233 years old, right? Absolutely not. Australia, its people and their traditions are some of the most ancient on the planet. The original inhabitants of Australia, known as Aboriginals, have called the island home for an obscene amount of time. Though still debated, the general consensus is that these people have inhabited Australia for at least 50,000 years. 50,000. Estimates even go up to 65,000, while the oldest Aboriginal rock art has been confirmed at 28,000 years old. Let that sink in for a minute. For reference, the Great Pyramid of Egypt, something I consider to be ancient, was built in 2600 BC, making it around 4,500 years old. 
only a toddler by comparison to this ancient culture. In 2016, a man looking for a good place for a toilet break on the side of the road stumbled into an Aboriginal cave dwelling and came across tools that were 40,000 years old, just sitting there as if the owners had only just left. If this is news to you, don't worry. Up until quite recently, there has been an unfortunate tendency to plaster over the achievements and history of Aboriginal culture. When the British colonised Australia, it was much more palatable to think of the country as empty. And even if it wasn't completely empty, these people who lived there weren't really making use of it. They were a bunch of hapless scavengers wandering from place to place with no concept of crops, money or international trade. With this mindset, it's easy to think of colonisation more as enlightenment. The way the British preferred to see it was that they were here to save these people from themselves. The idea to establish the colony of Australia came out of basic necessity. Britain's prisons were too full and the establishment of a base in this part of the world could serve as a launching pad for attacks on Spanish possessions in South America. The man tasked with leading the expedition was Arthur Philip. Philip had originally requested a group of skilled labourers to help establish farms to, you know, feed them. Instead, he was given just over 700 petty criminals and a few soldiers to keep order. It was a hard start, but Philip was a good governor, and he did his best to treat the convicts with dignity and turn the place into an actual colony rather than a prison camp. Initially, he took a similar approach with the Aboriginal population who lived in the area. I've included an interactive map of Aboriginal Australia on our socials to help you understand how incredibly diverse the language and cultural groups were and continue to be. For each distinctive terrain across Australia, there was a tribe that thrived there. Mountains, rivers, forests, islands, beaches, even deserts that to us would be nearly completely incompatible with life, there were tribes that had perfected the art of surviving there over a millennia. As the colony of Sydney grew in size, Philip's goal was to establish friendly relations with the Aboriginal people. There had been sporadic contact with a few men and women, but none could be coaxed into entering the town and hanging around for a significant period of time. So, as any sensible human would do, Philip decided to abduct an Aboriginal person instead. The plan was essentially going into a community and just grabbing two men, throwing them into a boat and paddling away. Obviously a great start to a friendly, respectful relationship. The journal from the man who was tasked with kidnapping the two Aboriginals says this of the event, quote, The natives, who were very numerous all around us, on seeing us seized these two, meaning the two men, immediately advanced with their spears and clubs, but we were too quick for them. Being out of reach before they had got to that part of the beach where the boat lay, they were entering on the beach just as everybody else was in the boat. And as she did not take to the ground, we immediately pulled out without having an occasion to fire a musket. The two men captured were named Colby and Benelong. The two men were shackled and dragged back into town, with Philip trying to have someone learn their language and teach them English in return. Colby escaped not long after. Benelong hung around for a little longer picking up a bit of English and providing Philip with a token understanding of some basic Euro words. But soon he too escaped. A few months later, Philip received word that Benelong, with a small group of warriors, was nearby the colony and travelled to meet them. Boldly, he approached Benelong and another Aboriginal man to introduce himself. The act was premature though, and the other man hurled a spear straight at the governor, hitting him in the shoulder. A scuffle broke out, but Philip cooled the situation by insisting that no harm should come to the men. Maybe he figured, hmm, probably deserved that one to be fair. 
As he recovered in hospital over the next few months, Bennelong visited his bedside and the two eventually became friends. A journal from a settler who knew Bennelong says about him, quote, His powers of mind were certainly far above mediocrity. He acquired knowledge, both of our manners and language, faster than his predecessor had done. He willingly communicated information, sang, danced, and capered, told us the customs of his country and all the details of his family's economy. Love and war seemed to be his favourite pursuits, in both of which he suffered severely. End quote. As the initial culture shock began to wear off, Aboriginal men and women began to poke their head into the strange foreign city, more out of curiosity than anything else. Habits and rituals that seemed so commonplace to one culture seemed alien to the other. For settlers, the Aboriginals' nakedness was in striking contrast to their conservative British mindset. And once they got past that, small things like how many Aboriginal women were missing part of their little finger, which was amputated and thrown into the sea as an offering to ensure good fortune when fishing, while the Aboriginals observed that the colony more or less ran on rum. As there was a shortage of coins, it was this potent alcohol that facilitated the exchange of goods and, when consumed, relaxed the drinker, loosened conversation. They also saw that the colony struggled to grow crops or keep their livestock healthy in a climate that was so foreign to what they were used to. This gave way to Aboriginal hunters being paid to provide the colony with food. Both the men and women were expert hunters on land and sea and knew how to catch, clean and cook almost every animal that was available. And soon, European settlers were eating kangaroo and goanna lizard for the first time. One of the hunters who started to be a regular face around the camp was a shadowy figure. The man kept his distance from the townsfolk and had a notable air of indifference to Western culture. He spent as little time as he could within the colony. Once the meat was dropped off and he got paid, he was gone. The settlers noticed that he had a blemish in his left eye, giving him a somewhat crazed look. And some noted that when he walked, it was with a slight limp due to a clubbed foot. If this was true, then this was a deliberate mutilation performed on him by his tribe to mark him as a karate, or someone with supernatural powers. His name was Pemelwoy. Aboriginal culture possessed no need for a written language, so unfortunately our record of his life commences when he began interacting with the colony. But generally, a child with such a striking birth defect like a turned eyeball may have been killed soon after his birth. The fact that Pemelwoy had survived up to this point and had even had his foot clubbed, indicated he was a particularly strong individual. And soon, every man, woman, and child in the young colony would know his name. For a time, a kind of nervous status quo was maintained. Though each Aboriginal and settler had individual feelings about the other, the two civilizations lived in cautious proximity to each other. But all that changed on the 9th of December, 1790. A few convicts and marines were assembled into a hunting party, Armed with muskets, they set out to the frontiers with the mission to bring back whatever meat they could find to feed the colony. Among the group was a man called McIntyre, who held a minor position of authority under Governor Philip. Camping out on the frontier at 1am, the small group was awoken by rustling in a nearby bush. Thinking it was a kangaroo, McIntyre quickly worked the other men and went to investigate. But it was no kangaroo. Peeking through the scrub were a couple of Aboriginal hunters, with spears pointed and ready to fling. McIntyre's alarm dissipated quickly, though, telling his men, It's okay, I know them. He dropped his gun to show that he meant no harm and walked slowly towards the Aboriginal men, talking to them in their language, which he understood a small part of. The hunters backed away cautiously, 
spears still primed. Then, from out of nowhere, a third man appeared, a man with a blemish in his left eye. Without warning, the third man hurled his spear directly into the chest of McIntyre, who fell backwards. As his hideous screams filled the warm night air, the Aboriginal party quickly scattered back into the bush. Almost immediately, the men knew that the wound was fatal. They managed to carry him back to town, where a surgeon confirmed the nature of the wound. Unable to remove the spear without causing the dying man immense pain, the doctor waited until McIntyre had passed. Once he had, he discovered the spear tip was barbed with sharpened stone, attached to the main shaft with a glue made from native plants. This thing had been designed to kill and cause extreme pain while it did so. Benelong and Colby arrived at the man's bedside and confirmed what McIntyre had shouted in his last moments of delirious pain. Pamelwoy had done this. But why? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Prior to the incident, both Benelong, Colby, and many other Aboriginals around the colony had spoken of their hatred of McIntyre and avoided going anywhere near him. Though they never explicitly stated why, there were rumours that McIntyre had murdered one or a few Aboriginals on his many hunting expeditions. The rumours were so pervasive that the man was even questioned about them on his deathbed. In his last few moments of life, McIntyre insisted that he had only shot one Aboriginal once, and that was out of self-defence. Make up your own mind on this one, but in my eyes, this man probably had blood on his hands, and Pemelwoy's attack was not random, but a calculated revenge hit. Whatever the reason, the killing of McIntyre ushered in a violent new era of colonial life. Governor Philip, in a knee-jerk reaction, ordered a huge expedition party be assembled. Totaling around 50 men, it was the first army the colony had ever put together. It was to be led by a man called Watkintench, whose journal provides a good portion of the source material we've used for this episode. The governor ranted to Tench that since the birth of the colony, 17 settlers had been killed by Aboriginals, according to him, all of which came from the Bidjigal tribe. Based on this, the tribe was inherently violent and needed to be made an example of, lest other tribes believe that the British were weak and followed in Pemulwuy's footsteps. Tench was ordered to capture 10 members of the Bidjigal tribe, one being Pemulwuy if they could find him. They were to chain them up and return to Colony, where they would be hung. In the event that it was not feasible to bring them back, they were to be executed on the spot by beheading. And then their heads were to be returned to camp to prove the task was done. The governor had even provided hatchets specifically prepared for the task. Tench put through a counter-proposal to the governor, and instead offered to bring back six Bidjigal warriors, two of whom would be hung, and four others sent to a prison camp and then released. 
This way, the, quote, lesson of Western punishment would have more staying power. The proposal was accepted, but it didn't matter. Far from the comparatively cushy shores of the colony, the group floundered through the dry, baking heat of interior Australia. They found no Aboriginals except Colby, who told them that he had heard Pemulwuyet had fled south. Trying to follow the trail, the exhausted group arrived at an Aboriginal village that had been vacant for many days. Many of the European prisoners who had been conscripted into the expedition claimed that they couldn't go on and needed to rest. The alien climate of heat and flies was wreaking havoc on them. Tench reluctantly agreed and the group headed back to Sydney. But on the way back, the party fell into a marsh that almost took the lives of a few men who sank up to their chests before having to be pulled out by rope. The expedition had been a complete failure. But on the outskirts of Sydney, they stumbled across a few Aboriginals nicking a handful of potatoes from a farm. Despite having no evidence that these people were Bidjigal, they fired on them, two of whom later died from their injuries. While the expedition had achieved little, if anything, Pemulwuy had been working his magic with other local tribes. Aboriginal tribes were not as rigidly defined as countries in Europe. The land claimed by one tribe may overlap others. Tribes bordering the other would have similar languages, and with many people being at least partly bilingual. The members of the tribes themselves would break into smaller groups to ensure they could gather enough food to live on, and throughout the year all members of the tribe would usually reunite at a particular time for a cultural or religious ceremony. It was perhaps at one of these ceremonies where Pemulwuy convinced a few other tribes to join his resistance. Through his power of persuasion, Pemulwuy was able to fill his rank with men of the Yura, Darug, and Thurawal tribes. All of these groups were centred around the Sydney Cove colony, who would have had the most contact with the Europeans. Lorna Munro, an Aboriginal activist, artist, and podcast host, said this of the tribal council, quote, The surrounding tribes, they united because of Pemulwuy. They united because they knew they had a strong leader, and they knew they had someone that was going to die for them if need be. End quote. Over the next few years, Pemulwuy and his newly found allies would strike from the shadows, stopping the growth of the colony. Pemulwuy's attacks were designed to be fast and unpredictable, hitting the exposed farmlands on the edge of the colony, burning crops, houses and farms, and killing any cattle they could find. The message was hard to ignore. The British Empire, for all its past achievements, was struggling in this part of the world. Richard Green, an Aboriginal land councillor, described the situation with a kind of eloquent simplicity. Quote, Black fellas all around the country were coming along and taking whatever they wanted. Big cows, sheep, they decimated them, ate the lot. They left the people of the colony starving and on the brink of desolation. End quote. Maintaining four different tribes focused on a singular goal was an incredible feat, and even as the smallpox began to tear through the native population, Pemulwuy's raid still continued. Usually he would rely on the settlers fleeing and make off before any serious military efforts arrived on the scene, but in 1795 he almost met his match. If you've listened to our episode on Antigua and Barbuda, we covered the life of a convict called John Caesar, or Black Caesar. This man had been in the colony for a while, and at this day he was assigned to labour duty. Caesar would have been quite a sight. He was probably the only black-skinned convict, and if that wasn't enough, he was a big fella with a huge appetite. Still, he didn't scare Pemulwuy. Undeterred, the raiding party came charging in to where Caesar and some other colonists were working. But unlike the other settlers in previous raids, Caesar didn't budge. 
Pemulwuy charged the enormous man and the two rained blows down upon each other, while the other convicts spurred on by Caesar also stood their ground. As the two men duked it out, Caesar managed to get the upper hand and almost caved in Pemulwuy's skull. Either through musket shot or the impact of a pickaxe, Pemulwuy copped a severe blow to the head, some sources saying that his skull itself was cracked. But he hadn't got this far in life from being weak. Despite the grievous wound, he and his band of men freed themselves and managed to retreat back into the bush. Caesar was confident that the wound would take its toll, and confident that he had finally put an end to the famous Pemulwuy. But only a few weeks later, Pemulwuy was right back in the fray, leading his men to raiding parties on yet more isolated farms, seemingly no worse for wear despite the massive wound that should have killed him. And with this, his legend began. Pemulwuy had always attracted a good deal of superstition and wonder from his own tribe. Remember, he likely had his foot clubbed as a testament to his perceived supernatural ability. But after this encounter, the settlers began to indulge in their own theories about the man. Far away from their home in this strange foreign land, the minds of the townsfolk began to wander. Maybe this man had perhaps tapped into some kind of ancient power that was beyond their comprehension. Perhaps Pemulwuy wasn't able to be killed by European weapons. As the budding colony began to stabilise, its borders pushed into what was undeniably Aboriginal land, specifically Darug land. The Darug tribe relied on a cultivated crop similar to what we would call a yam or sweet potato. Good, cultivatable land was rare around the colony, and so it's no surprise that this was the first place the settlers began to encroach upon. The natives' yams were torn up and the European corn was planted in its place. The takeover was handled with the subtleness of a bull in a china shop. Aboriginal men, women and children were more or less told to clear off and find somewhere else to live. It didn't matter where, but it couldn't be here. And sometime over the course of the day, an Aboriginal child was shot dead. This event led to an increase of raids over the next few months, and alarmingly, the raiding party seemed to be getting larger and better coordinated. Pemulwuy was clearly pulling the strings in the background, and more disgruntled Aboriginal tribes were now seeking him out to join the cause. As harvest time for the corn began to draw near, the Darug people organised about 50 warriors who were either planning to steal or burn the crop that had taken the settlers so many months to mature. Word of this plan leaked to Governor Philip, who was incredibly concerned that, as these crops were now becoming the primary food source, the colony may starve if the raid was successful. 62 men were deployed to the perimeter, and during the night, a Darug camp was sighted. The settlers opened fire, killing eight aboriginals. This, once again, sparked a kind of tit-for-tat warfare, with many bands of warriors from a number of tribes now bent on revenge against the colony for loved ones that were killed. The thin veneer of peaceful coexistence that Governor Philip had tried to cultivate had been completely blown off. There was no room for neutrality now, you were either on Pemulwuy's side or England's. Hunting parties sent out from Sydney were particularly vulnerable. Settler accounts give descriptions of Aboriginals butchering any isolated men they came across and hanging their entrails on spears, leaving their mutilated bodies as a grisly warning. Aboriginals became a rarer sight within the colony. It was best to keep away lest you be accused of spying for Pemulwuy. For Governor Philip, the situation was becoming too much for him. His job was to stabilise and expand the colony, but the combined hostility of the tribes, as well as their unity, made this an almost impossible task with the manpower he had available. 
Pemulwuy would never come to the negotiating table, and without that there could be no truth. The months turned into years, but still there was no peace in the colony. Governor Arthur Philip eventually returned to England, taking his old friend Ben along with him. Finally, in 1797, things came to a head near the modern-day city of Parramatta. Pemulwuy had gathered a huge war band of around 100 men. With the confidence of numbers, it was the first time he was to give a kind of pitched battle to the British. Instead of ordering a retreat when the British troopers showed up, Pemulwuy hurled the first spear. The colonial militia lined up in battle formation and opened fire. As the whiz of spears and bullets cut through the air, the technological gap between the two civilizations was made as clear as day. The battle raged on, but it was clear the Aboriginal warriors were dropping faster. Pemulwuy, as usual, was not one to keep himself out of harm's way, and was shot multiple times, but still continued fighting. But as the losses mounted and they ran low on spears to throw, the warband broke and fled back to the safety of the interior. The Battle of Parramatta, as it became known, left 55 dead, 32 Aboriginals and 13 settlers. In the aftermath, a British trooper came across the body of a man with a clubbed foot and turned eye. Pemulwuy had been shot an unbelievable seven times, but he was still alive, just barely. Pemulwuy was scooped up from the battlefield and was transported to the colony hospital, where he was expected to pass away soon. With almost as many bullets in him as 50 cent, every day his bedside doctor predicted his demise, but he lingered. So much so that, as a precaution, leg irons were slapped on him, and with every day he looked better, more healthy. Then, one day, once the morning sun rose, he was gone. Despite being full of bullets, with a cracked skull, and wearing leg irons, he had somehow managed to escape in one of the most secure and well-guarded places in the colony. His jailers were stupefied. By all logic, this man should be dead, or at very least, permanently disabled. This further fueled speculation of the man's supernatural abilities, and truth be told, if I was there, I'd probably start believing them myself. Against all odds, six months later, Pemulwuy was back at the head of his men, but his plethora of wounds had clearly weakened him. There were no more pitched battles like Parramatta. Maybe some of his tribal allies had deserted the cause, or perhaps the length of the war, which was now almost ten years, had thinned the ranks of available recruits. Whatever reason, small-scale, infrequent hit-and-runs became the norm again. Even so, his appeal was still widespread with now two white convicts raiding alongside he and his men. His son, Tedbury, may also have started to be more involved in the attacks at this time. Perhaps all were now starting to see the signs of this legendary figure beginning to slow. His lifetime of hard fighting was finally catching up to him. Gallons of rum were offered to anyone who could capture him, but still the raids on the frontier farms continued. Every expedition that was sent to find him came trudging back from the bush a few men short, barely catching a glimpse of anything suspicious until the very last second before they were attacked. But, finally, after 12 years of resistance, the great Pamelwoy's luck finally ran dry. During a raid, he was shot and killed by a sailor named Henry Hacking. In order to claim the reward for his death, and to prove finally and definitively he had been killed, the sailor then cut off the man's head and sent it to the governor. The head was pickled and sent back to England, with a simple epitaph reading, quote, Although a terrible pest to the colony, he was a brave and independent character. End quote. 
Pemulwuy's death marked the end of organised resistance to British rule by Australian Aborigines. Though many had and would continue to defend their lands, none could seem to rally the tribes in the way Pemulwuy had. In the same way Genghis Khan united the Mongols, or Skanderberg united the Albanians, it takes a very unique type of person to inspire others to move in one direction for a perceived greater good. Pemulwuy had managed to cut through political and social barriers and move four different tribes together for a common goal, and keep it going for an unbelievable 12 years. Aboriginal scholar Eric Wilmot says this of Pemulwuy, quote, This war wasn't a scrap between a bunch of Bidjigals and a bunch of British. This was a war of worlds, of two different worlds. The British believed in their world, and Pemulwuy believed in his, end quote. In the years after, Tedbury, Pemulwuy's son, did his best to keep his father's legacy alive, but never achieved the kind of fame he did. He was executed eight years later, and slowly but surely the colony expanded into the interior. The legacy of Aboriginal Australia continues to this day, as it rightfully should. However, it's only recently that some of the atrocities committed against the original custodians of this land have been acknowledged in any form. Tasmania, the small island below the east coast of Australia, experienced such a decline in Aboriginal population that the word genocide has been thrown around, while in Western Australia in the early 1900s, Aboriginals were chained up and used to help find the location of wells in particularly dry parts of Australia, and for 50 years from the 1910s to the 1960s, a government policy forcibly removed many Aboriginal children from their parents to be rehoused elsewhere, claiming that they were not being cared for correctly. Those that were relocated are referred to today as the Stolen Generation. It's not within the scope of this podcast to deep dive into all the examples of this, but I wanted to try and showcase that the concerns Pemulwuy may have had about exploitation were at very least partly warranted. In the 1930s, a protest event led by an Aboriginal community led to the creation of NAIDOC Week, which this episode was created in honour of. NAIDOC stands for National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee, and this is a weekly-long celebration across Australia that celebrates Aboriginal people's achievements. Each year during this very week, the stories of Pemulwuy and other Aboriginal leaders are told and retold to younger generations. In the late 1980s, the folk band Red Gum wrote a song called Water and Stone about Pemulwuy. I'll have the link to the full song on our website, but some particularly powerful lyrics go like this. A thousand pities fell like rain, the day the world changed colour. Tears of rage filled our eyes, and ears were ringing with Pemulwuy's song. In the last 20 years or so, there has been a revisionist look at Aboriginal people's relations to the land. The persistent colonial idea of them being hapless wanderers is beginning to melt away as interest in Aboriginal foods, methods of cultivation, and fire control are being re-examined. If this is something you'd like to learn more of, I've added a fascinating book that goes into detail about this on our website. Since Pemulwuy's death all those years ago, there's been a growing collective call from the Aboriginal community of Australia to have his skull returned where it belongs. In 2010, Crown Prince William announced that he would have the skull returned, and there seemed to be a genuine effort made to locate it, but eventually the trail went cold. It's likely that somewhere in the archives of the National History Museum of London, the skull of this brave indigenous warrior sits waiting to be rediscovered and sent back to the country he fought so hard for. I'll take us out with another quote from Eric Wilmot. 
As the Europeans explored and expanded their domains in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, they created many enemies, some weak, some powerful, but none more implacably hostile or uncompromising than the Australian Pemulwuy. A huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.